our New Testament. We're starting a new book today. Glorious undertaking always to move on to a new new book and a new subject. And I'm very excited by the prospect. Although, as with every book, there are minefields and troubling, difficult passages. Pray uh, for grace in those. Uh, I'm actually going to read down to verse 12. The message this morning will just be on the first two verses. So we're in 1 Peter. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses, and then we'll look at the end of the book, chapter 5, verses 12 and 14. We're going to handle that subject matter today. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, fading, keep kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be Yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which ang angels longed to look. Now, I want to flip over to the end of the book since we're focusing on the first two, two verses. His final greetings are also relevant. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that uh, this is true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet another, one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all. 
who are in Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so in starting a new book, I want to look at the introduction. And while I don't want to spend a lot of time or any time talking about how Paul is an, or Peter here is an apostle, just like Paul said he was an apostle, the greetings to individuals. Uh, we've looked at those and thought about them in the past. But I want us to think here about who he's writing to. Who are the people the book is for? Because that is us. Who are we? Before we consider that, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you moved Peter by the Holy Spirit to write these things and recorded them for us and have delivered us them to us that we might know them and reason with them and have our hearts enlightened in the knowledge of you through them. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage now, do open our hearts that we might see the truth. We might learn and grow and change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, he starts off to those who are elect. Now, some other translations may have to those who are chosen. And the reason being, the word elect gives some people cringes. And that's sad. Uh, you know, it's not good for them to obfuscate or hide the meaning because they don't like it. But some people get offended by this and they challenge the concept of election by philosophical means. Uh, so I think we need to spend a few minutes really thinking about this and considering it. The problem people raise is how can God choose some to go to heaven and leave others to go to hell? Is that fair? You know, we were all asked in school, oh, did you bring enough for the whole class? Well, then you shouldn't be sharing, you shouldn't be having. Uh, today, you know, if you show favoritism of any kind, even just by picking one, okay, I need one person to come with me and they're going to have dinner with me. Oh, but everybody else will then be offended. Oh, you're unjust, you're unfair. But that's not true. You know, if it, as Jesus teaches, if it's mine to do with what I want, how can you complain? Remember the parable of the uh, man who hired workers? You know, he went out in the beginning in the morning, hired some, hired some at noon, hired some at dinner time, and they all agreed to work for the same day's wage. And when he pays them in reverse order, the one who was there for the whole day said, how can you possibly give them more than you give me? I worked harder. Now I was there in the heat of the day. And Jesus says, you know, it's mine to do with what I please, and you agreed to work for that amount. Today, that would be a big lawsuit, and you know, Jesus would be bankrupt and have to pay everybody the same for the proportional amount. But he's saying it's his. It's his to choose what he does with. And it's his to choose to save some people. They're all equally undeserving in his mind. Now, the word elect in the scripture is only used 22 times. And it's always used of God's election. Uh, usually it's the church that he's talking about, uh, as in this passage, 
and he warns us in Matthew, Jesus warns us in Matthew 24, 24, there'll be false Christs and false prophets that will arise and do great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Meaning that the elect, the chosen of God, cannot be led astray. But he's referring to them, in that case, as all the elect of all time, all the people God has chosen. Remember, Jesus said, you know, all the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will raise them up at the last day. I'm not losing any of the ones given to me. Those given to him are the elect. Now, a few times in Scripture, two places, elect is used to refer to Christ. Luke 23, 35, the people stood watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. We're talking about Jesus on the cross. They said, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, his elect one. And so Jesus was called the elect. Peter refers to him that way in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. In verses 4, he says, As you have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The word chosen there is elect and precious. And in verse 6, he's quoting the Old Testament, well, summarizing the Old Testament. He says, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A cornerstone elect. So there it is referring to him, Jesus, as elect. The one chosen by God for his purpose. The one other odd use of the word is in 1 Timothy 5.21, where he says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep those rules without prejudging, do nothing from partiality. Who are the elect angels? Well, you'll know the demon there's also an angel that joined in Satan's rebellion against God. And so there were some who were destined to follow Satan and be damned, and there were some who were chosen by God to continue to serve him. And so just with man, God had elected some of the angels. The angels who sinned were fallen angels, the demons, they were kept in prisons, for the final judgment. They have no no hope. They can't repent and be saved. That was only a privilege given to man. But anyway, the elect in the Bible is always referring to God's people. It is not used for those people who profess Christ, who come to church, who follow a little ways or all the way, and yet who haven't been regenerate. You remember the parable of the four souls. <coughs> Right? Some hear the word and don't care. Some hear the word, but they have no depth. And as soon as they realize, you know, the, the lie, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm going to be happy and I'm going to have everything I need in this world. Once they realize that's a lie, they leave. And then those who follow along, but they get entangled by the, the world's desires and the things of the flesh. And they never produce the fruit of righteousness. Those also are lost. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 11 and following, 
he gives a, a parable, the king about the king, king of heaven and a king having a wedding feast. And when the king come in and looked at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. Wedding garment here is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. And he said to him, friend, how did you get out in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He wasn't regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He did not have the righteousness of Christ to cloak him. When we stand before God's throne, all of our sins are laid bare, and he will judge us and cast us out, unless our sins have been paid by the blood of Christ, and his righteousness has been given to us. That is the garment here. But the last verse, 14, he says, for many are called. And the gospel call goes out not to every living creature, it's allowed for every living creature, but those who hear it are not everyone. But those who hear it, many come to church. But they leave because they're not getting what they want. They leave because the world has better things. Or even they continue all the way to the end, thinking themselves to be saved. But they've never known Christ. They've never known his righteousness. He says, many are called, but few are elect. Uh, usually translated chosen, but the word there is the same word, elect. The elect are the ones God has chosen to redeem, the ones God has chosen to give faith, the ones God has chosen to give a new life in Christ. Many are called, but few are elect. You know, here in chapter 1, verse 1, and also in chapter 5, verse 14. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Compound word there, it has together with chosen, together with elect. So probably likewise elect. Sends you greetings. You know, this is referring to the believers scattered throughout the whole world. All of us, whether we be Jew or Gentile, one nation or another nation, he's writing to all of them. And he, these people are elect, not by their choice, but by the foreknowledge of God. Now, another troubling concept that people fight against and struggle with. Uh, Jesus taught in Mark 13, 20, that the Lord, if the Lord had not cut short those days, talking about the great tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, he chose to shorten those days. Elect, and the word choose there, chose, is a verb form related to the word elect. Now, in the Bible, it's used to choose something for yourself. But the choosing for himself here was the elect. The ones he chose are the ones called the elect. Uh, the reason I point out that passage is because Paul uses that word when he talks about us in Ephesians chapter 1, the great election passage about the foreknowledge of God. Starting at verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. That word is the same word Jesus used for choosing the elect. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons to Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us with in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So we see that this foreknowledge of God goes all the way back, even back beyond the foundation of the world. Before he had created any man, before he had created the world, he had already decided that he would choose some people to be his. To be his in a special way. Now, some want to insist that this foreknowledge is God looking down through time and finding which person was going to be the best and picking them. Uh, if you've ever played like baseball and you pick teams at school, you want to pick the best people. Well, if you knew in advance who was going to be the best and who was going to be in top form that day, you would pick those, right? And they said, well, that's what God does. However, Scripture is pretty explicit about one thing, and that is that we have nothing to boast about. If I was picked, you know, it's like, oh, God saw that I was awesome, and he picked me. And I'm certainly a lot better than you that weren't picked. Right? That would be man's nature, our sinful, corrupt nature. We want to be all glorious. We want to be God. Oh, God chose me because I'm superior. What does Ephesians 2 say? Verse 8 through 10. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very explicit. God didn't choose people so they could boast about their greatness. He did not choose the greatest. Remember the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were powerful. He chose the weak things so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were not saved by good works, but for them, so that we have nothing to boast about. God did not look down and see who would be the best. So what then would foreknowledge mean? Well, he picked us so that we would persevere to the end, but that perseverance is also coming from him. Don't forget, all the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. Now they will be there to the end. All the Father gives to me, I will raise up on the last day. And we're talking about John chapter 6, chapter 10. Has, we looked at these verses a few months ago. God will keep us. It's not his seeing that we would persevere, but his choice to choose us that we would persevere. Remember uh, Matthew 22, where we read he casts out those not wearing the wedding clothes. That was really the difference between the elect and those who have answered the outward call and not being chosen. If the Father hadn't sent them, they won't persevere to the end. 
and they won't really know Christ and they won't really have put their faith in him alone for their salvation. And so, when we're talking about his foreknowledge, it's his choosing some undeserving people to be the recipients of his great mercy. Now, mercy would not be mercy if it was earned. If it was earned, there would be wages, as Paul often says. And he chose us according to his great mercy, we see in verse 3 of our passage. Not because of our worthiness or our greatness. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace have you been saved and raised us up with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, we were dead, and he's made us alive. This foreknowledge is that choice. Now, I, Jesus, when he's talking about the end times in Matthew 7, 21 and 22, 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now what does it mean he never knew them? Well, God knows all things, right? Knowledge is not about knowledge of what we will do. I knew you in the sense that I loved you, that I chose you. That we have that special relationship. That is what he was talking about. And so we were chosen in foreknowledge. Chosen by God before he created us to be saved, to persevere in the end. All of it. Which is why he can promise he will never leave us or forsake us. Why he can promise he will raise us up on the last day. Why he can promise he will work all things together for our good. Because before he made us, he had our plan out. Our good is not necessarily, of course, what the world wants. It's what God wants. His kingdom, his glory. And this is what brings us to the next point. Notice that we are exiles of the dispersion, according to the ESV. The dispersion here, many feel that it is meaning, remember the Jews, they lived in Israel, they were isolated, they had a very isolationist policy, they didn't talk to or deal with foreigners. Uh, very hard for the gospel to go out. Because they had taken God's appointing them as a kingdom of priests to mean that they were superior to the rest of the world, but over time they became isolated from the world. God punished them for their many sins and sent Babylon and Assyria to conquer them they took the people into exile, the people in exile scattered around the world, and that is referred to as the dispersion. We can read about that in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, pretty much every city Paul went to, with a few exceptions, had a synagogue. 
The synagogue was there because Jews were there. The Jews were there because they'd been scattered around the region. When they got to Iconium in Acts chapter 14, verse 1, it says they entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. That was his purpose as he went about the world. He went first to God's people, the Jew. They knew the testimonies. They knew about the Christ coming. Now he's telling them he is here. Believe in him. And those who were true Jews, those who had real faith in God, acknowledged their Messiah. In the apostate Jews, the ones who were living lives in rebellion against God, persecuted them and drove them out of the synagogues. But many devout Jews around the world heard about their Messiah and followed him. Well, what about the Christians? What about the Gentile Christians? Well, they were joining in with them. In the synagogues, and when they were driven out of the synagogues and the other places of worship, they were one body, one people, one group. Peter's not limiting this just to Jews. This is to everyone who believes. Uh, Peter, in, this, in the first chapter, a little further than we read, starts talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. In uh, verse 17 through 21, he says, You call on a father, father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves, therefore, in fear to the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious, precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last time for your sake. There's the foreknown again. God's knowledge of what he, his plan, what he would do. And through him you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now this passage is clearly not something restricted to the Jews. Um, the feudal ways of their forefathers uh, possibly can mean the false religion of the Pharisees, but more likely means the false religions of everybody, especially the Gentiles. And their ways were feudal <coughs> offerings to the God, even offerings of their own children to be put to death in hopes of getting the blessing of God. No, that was futile. There was no value in that. There was value in faith. And so, Peter, my point is here that Peter isn't talking to Jews only. He's really talking to all the people in the churches of his day. And he's writing to Gentile regions where the Christian church, having been driven out of the synagogue, would be meeting Jew and Gentile together at the same time. Some people want to make a distinction, though, between the Jew and the Gentile, even in the New Testament. And we really need to purge that idea from our thoughts. Now, we, we, we make that mistake, but really, when you think about it, there's only one God. There's only one shepherd. There's only one sheep pen, one house of God, one people of God. Jesus talks about this in John 10, 14 through 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, 
And I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. We Gentiles have been brought in with the Jews to the truth before God. And the Old Testament believers scattered everywhere, you know, the ones who believed were part of that flock, under that shepherd. The ones who did not believe, the ones who rejected him, were obviously apostate, not, not believing Jews. And they're not being referred to by Peter or by Paul as brothers in Christ, but simply as Jews. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 17-19, that he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit and one to one father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. We have been made citizens of Christ's kingdom by being elect, by having faith, by exercising that faith, by living for God. And we are no longer then strangers and aliens to God, but we are strangers and aliens now to the world. And the world recognizes that. You've never traveled overseas, but maybe you've seen foreigners in this country. You know, they're often treated harshly as outsiders, as unwelcome and unwanted. And the world sees us now as foreigners, outsiders, unwanted, unwelcome. That we, just as Americans do not want you know, our culture, our democracy, our freedoms, our constitution to be overwritten by people coming from outside. So the world doesn't want people from outside, the Christians, overwriting their sinful, corrupt nature and, world, and views and beliefs. And that's why it's important for us to think about how we are really, we are strangers and sojourners, foreigners, outsiders. We're part of this dispersion. And this is an important thing. Now, dispersion, the word there really implies like seed is scattered in the field to grow a crop. And it makes me think of the way leavening works. You add yeast to, to flour, what happens? Well, you mix in a tablespoon of yeast with a big pile of flour, and you mix it thoroughly. Or baking soda, the same way, leavening. In Matthew 13, 33, Jesus says, Jesus told them another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You take a little bit the baking soda, you mix it in with a giant amount of flour and water, and you mix it, and what happens? Your bread rises. You've transformed all the flour. If you don't have the leavening, what happens? If you cook it, comes this short, flat piece of shoe leather. <coughs> it's not nice. And that's the way the believers are. It's part of the dispersion. We've been scattered like seed. We've been mixed into the world like leavening. And we change that world. The more believers there are working for God's kingdom and God's glory, the more transformed that region will appear. The Great Reformation saw the transformation of Europe, 
brought that transformation, transformed heart and mind to America, and made us different, really, than the rest of the world. <laughs> but now, with the religion of Marxism, you know, Europe has fallen, America has fallen, and the impact of Christ is being lost. But we are still here, we are still strangers, we are still exiles. Now, if we're in Christ, we're now part of his kingdom, and we're a new creation. That's what he says, in, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, and through Christ reconciled him us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting it a crime. <coughs> Excuse me. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as we are scattered throughout the world, we are the leavening, the salt, the light, we are here to bring that message of reconciliation to the world. And that is why we are scattered everywhere in this dispersion so that everyone may have the opportunity to hear. Now the ESV says we are exiles. King James says we are strangers. I like the NASB. It defines it instead of translating it. It says, those who reside as aliens. We are expats, as they're called around the world. And we have left <coughs> our country. We are in a foreign country. But we are not becoming citizens and living in that country. We are living here as foreigners. And that's important. You know, there are many people who come to America and want to become American. When I went to Cambodia, Cambodia, I became a Cambodian in the sense that I wanted to reach out and connect with the people. But I wasn't going to give up my American citizenship. And we as Christians, we are in this world, but we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. And as a result, we don't want to give up our heavenly citizenship to stay in the world, do we? To have the things of the world, be part of the culture of the world, to enjoy the privileges and blessings of the people of the world. No, we are strangers. We are aliens who reside here. Our citizenship is and always must be remembered to be in heaven. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we're told that he, Christ, delivered us from the, or God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That redemption, that forgiveness of sins, comes by the fact that we are in his kingdom now, not in the world. And if we want to go back to the world, we want to become citizens of the world, we're really abandoning that redemption, that forgiveness. In Philippians 3.20, we learned recently that our citizenship is in heaven. We await from the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is not our home. Peter will make this point more later, and we'll, we'll look at it in more depth then. But in 2 Peter 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, 
Abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. We'll be looking at that passage in more detail when we come to it. But as we are not citizens of the world, we should not partake in the things of this world. We should be devoted to heaven. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and with thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul warns us fiercely in Colossians 3, 1 and following, that since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with God. So when Christ appears, your life will appear also, and you will appear with him in glory. You know, we are strangers, we are pilgrims, we are living as foreigners and aliens. And that's what he's telling us here, the exiles of dispersion. Now we were talking this week with the kids, we were reading in uh, Romans 8 where it talks about, in verse 18 and 25, considering the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he goes on and he talks about that for a while. And I was trying to explain this to the kids, and I said, it's kind of like sledding. You walk up the hill. It's a long, painful, and unpleasant journey. You slip, you fall, it's difficult. You're not sledding so that you walk up the hill. You're sledding so you can enjoy the ride down. And we're not Christians so that we can enjoy our pilgrimage here in the world. We're Christians because we want to enjoy eternity with God in heaven. And that is the point we need to take from this. We are exiles, but we are the elect of God. We are his. Christian life is not a destination. Become a Christian and all your problems will go away. I heard that, that gospel a lot in Cambodia. It wasn't true for them. It's not true for us. It's not in the Bible. We live this life so that we would be with God forever. Christians living this life must live then a new life. And that's really, the rest of the book is about that. Most, most of the Bible is about that, that new life that we have as a believer. We know <coughs> what it says here, that we are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, in sanctification by the Spirit. What does he mean by sanctification by the Spirit? Well, the Spirit was promised to come and to remind them of everything they'd been taught, to teach them all the things that God had given them, the apostles. The apostles then, and others, are writing these things down for us in the Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, First of all, know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit moved these men along to speak and to write. Their teachings are for us in the Bible. And when we read that, we have the Spirit of God's instruction in our hearts. We have the Spirit moving us. 
That will then be revealed to us and we will be sanctified that way. John 17, 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. When he says in our passage today, in the sanctification of the Spirit, he's talking about our knowledge of salvation, our salvation itself coming from the Spirit, changing us, transforming us, not just immediately, but continually throughout our lives. And we'll look at that more as in passages in 1 Peter, because that comes up over and over again as an important concept for him and for us. Through the word, we are sanctified, made holy. That's the meaning of the word here, made holy. And it also says we are elect for the sprinkling of his blood. Now, sometimes we like to forget about that, but as we take communion each Sunday, we try to remember that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19 through 22 when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. And indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What was the point of all that Old Testament law? Somebody has to pay for our sin. Death. We can never pay for it. There's never enough to satisfy God's justice for even the smallest of our sins. But Christ's life was infinitely worth because he is the Son of God. He is God himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And because of that, his blood has infinite worth. And so he paid the price for us. He suffered and died on the cross in our place. And that has infinite value. It can pay for all of our sins. It can pay for all of his people's sins. And that is what we were elected for. We were elect so that God could set us apart to be cleansed by the blood of his son. And that is a great and wonderful thing. And after he says that, he says, may the grace in peace be multiplied to you. Knowing that we have this from Christ, this gift, this life. We are exiles, we are strangers. God has chosen us, God has called us, God has set us apart. God has sent his son to die for us. That we would have this new life, this new life of obedience. He mentions it here, for obedience to Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Our obedience to him, even through all the persecutions and trials of this world, are what we are called to do in this life. That is how we are salt and light. That is how we are living. That is how we see the world change. And we have seen the world changing dramatically in the last year, this country especially. And if we want to stop that and reverse that, 
We are the salt. We are the light. We are the leaven. We must be Christians. We must keep his commandments. We must show the world our love for God. That we are indeed strangers and pilgrims in this world. And that there is a far greater, greater kingdom waiting for us. And there are many mansions set aside for us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you did choose us, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that there was no value in us, that you called us, that you chose us even before the foundation of the world, that you sanctified us through your Spirit, sprinkled us with his blood that we might be purified, and Lord, that you have given us works to do that we might be obedient and bring glory to your name. We pray that you would strengthen us as we face challenging times in a challenging life and in a hostile world. That we might always remember the kingdom that awaits us in heaven. An eternity of bliss and joy with you for your mercies are new each day. There will be no more sorrow or tears, no more causes for sin or stumbling, but joy everlasting. Remind us of these things that we might live our life for them. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.